liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows just don't get treated like a hoe Tonight's episode is with the great Carol Roth. She was just on TimCast and she blew me away, so I knew I had to talk to her. She is just unbelievably sharp. I think you will gain a ton from this conversation. I know I did. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our friends over at crash.co backslash daily. You know our friends at Crash, the ones with the daily job hunt newsletter that I've been telling you about. Well, right now they are offering a free 15-minute job hunting consult to anybody looking for a new job. These guys have helped thousands of people get hired, and they want to help you. For a free job hunt consult call, go to crash.co forward slash apply. So as opposed to the normal newsletter for the daily job hunt, which is crash.co forward slash daily, now you just go to crash.co forward slash apply to sign up, and they will give you a 15-minute free consultation to get that job of your dreams. So now, not only can you read about it for free, you can get some consultation for free. Woo, this is the time, folks. Go to crash.co forward slash apply. If you've been laid off during the lockdowns or if you're just on a, a career tra- trajectory that you don't feel comfortable with, especially given the potential economic crisis that could be in the future, I think this is the time to do it. Make sure you don't delay. Again, go to crash.co forward slash apply. Let's get into the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. Got another very special guest today. I am thrilled to talk to her. I uh, was just blown away by your appearance on Timcast. So Carol Roth, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. How many very special guests do you have? And what, is there like a category above very special or I'm just trying to figure out where I stand here? Uh, I think you're you're very high on the very special uh, categorization list. I, I can't think, I mean, for me, Dave Smith is kind of the pinnacle for me. So that would be, he would get one tick higher, but just barely. Like very, very special. Yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> just trying to figure out where I stand as we as we start this whole thing. <laughs> well, uh, for those that don't know Carol, she's a, a recovering investment banker like myself, or at least I was a money manager, and she's the author of The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. I was one of those small businesses who had their backbone crushed. So uh, I thought that this would be a terrific conversation to have. Uh, so let's start. Let's start with a little bit of your background for those that don't know you. Uh, can you? I don't. I don't know what you're allowed to talk about and what's not allowed. So uh, if you could just give us kind of a broad background, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I'm. I'm the kind of person I'll talk about anything. I don't let anybody allow me to do anything or not Perfect. allow me. So uh, open, open book. Uh, no pun intended. So um, I was the first in my immediate family to go to college. I went to Wharton undergrad. I paid my way through mostly. Uh, came out with forty thousand dollars in college debt. Needed to pay that down, and uh, so had sort of two choices. People who like to do a deep dive go into management consulting. Those people who have ADD go into investment banking so we can work on a bunch of deals at the same time. So <laughs> I became an investment banker. As you mentioned, I'm sort of recovering. It's a 12-step process. I am permanently stuck somewhere around stage 11 as someone's always trying to get me involved in some deal of some sort, you know, and it can ne- never really get the deal making out of you. Um, but uh, had my own broker dealer for a while, 
and then transitioned and doing to doing all kinds of both interesting and foolish things um, have been in and around the media for about 12 years now which has included some fun things like um, being a reality competition judge for Mark Burnett on a tech competition show called America's Greatest Makers and doing some absurd things like being on just about every cable news program that's ever existed. Um, <laughs> and uh, I sit on boards. I um, act as an outsourced chief customer officer for collectibles companies. So I'm active in that space. I make some investments. I advise and create content and just do a whole slew of stuff. And during pandemics, I write books, apparently. Nice. Well, uh, yeah. what I mean, there was certainly a need to to highlight how the lockdowns destroyed small business in this country. Is, is your inspiration in writing it as simple as that, that you just saw the, the writing on the wall that this was going to be a problem and you wanted to, to bring it to people's attention? Or is it, does it go deeper than that? Wouldn't that be a nice, tidy story to tell? No. <laughs> so I was approached um, by HarperCollins at the pretty, pretty near the beginning of the pandemic when they saw that you know, economically this was going to be a historic moment and said, you know, we want someone um, to do an economic takeaway book and we want somebody who's actually credible and knows what they're talking about. And so I signed up for this Herculean task of like your real time as this is unfolding, thought it would be great and didn't realize what I was signing up for. Um, my background you know, includes a lot of small business advocacy. My last book was about small business about a, a decade ago. And so I've, I've always been known as a small business expert and advocate. So it was very clear from the beginning that A, they were gonna get screwed and B, that they were gonna be an important part of the story. But what I didn't realize was the scope of the historic transfer of wealth from Main Street to Wall Street that was you know, going to occur. Um, you, know, you, you knew that it was gonna be so, somewhat, I, I kept calling it this E-shaped thing with sort of three different outcomes at the top, middle and bottom. But the, the epic proportions of the transfer it was something that I really uncovered as we went along and, and saw how all these quote unquote relief packages and um, played out in money printing and all those kinds of things. So I truthfully wrote about three and a half different books during the pandemic with three different titles and finally ended that this was the, the right way to sort of position the story. Uh, it was at one point 160,000 words and my publisher said, no, Carol, nobody wants to read that. So we called it down to 90,000 to make it more readable. Um, but yeah, it was like, I, I didn't know, I, I try not to have that bias going in. I tried to just kind of record what was going on and then find the pathway. And as we you know, ch chiseled away at the block of, of ice, you know, this is what had happened. And as you can imagine, you know, part of the book is really talking about what happened in the last year, but then I use that as sort of the pathway to talk about what's been happening really over the last couple of decades, setting the stage to enable this sort of historic moment to happen. I love it. Well, uh, I got to ask, Carol, are you a workaholic? Because writing three and a half books during a pandemic is pretty, pretty nuts. <laughs> just a little, just a little. But I remember too, I mean, not only am I a workaholic, um, you know, as somebody who wants to create during my time, but a lot of the things that I used to be able to do, I couldn't 
do anymore. Like I used to fly around to go speak at conferences or to, you know, fly and, you know, go see people in different locations, but like all that was taken away. So, you know, th- there were only so many things I could do. <laughs> right. So you had some, uh, some added time put on your hands against exactly. your will. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm in the same boat. I started this show for that exact reason is that I was running my business, which was a private money <clears throat> mortgage broker. <clears throat> and, uh, and I couldn't, as a fiduciary for my investors, I could no longer in good conscience lend in this environment because mm-hmm. at the time I didn't know that they were going to print $7 trillion and, and have all these <laughs> bailouts and have a foreclosure and eviction moratorium that would ba- basically make you know real estate skyrocket in value as opposed to doing what it ought to do, which is it ought right. to collapse um, because obviously people aren't getting the same income that they used to. They can't afford their housing and you should see a knock on effect there, but it didn't happen because the federal reserve and the, uh, the government stepped in. So I've, I've been theorizing on this and I'd like to run it past you. Cause I actually thought of this just yesterday. Um, you, you heard of the, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yes. I have no idea if this is an original thought. So if you've heard it before, you let me know. I think we could easily come up with a four degrees of the Federal Reserve when it comes to, <laughs> to any problem in society. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's like, I feel like this is named that tune. I feel like I could name that tune in three notes, you know, I, like three, exactly. three degrees no. of separation. Yeah, and it's um, it's challenging. It's, it's why I devoted an entire chapter in the book to the Fed and this sort of, you know, historic, ongoing transfer from Main Street to the wealthiest folks. It, because it is so opaque by design, um, and I talk about it in the book and a lot of it's sourced from um, Dr. Murray Rothbard and his book, The Case Against the Fed, which is another great, great book to, to check out. Um, it's so opaque. I don't think that people have any sense of you know, how, how ingrained they are and, and you know how they are this sort of like big bank government cozy cartel situation working in cahoots together to transfer wealth and because like people just they don't understand inflation they don't understand money supply they don't understand the, you know, the fact it. that printing money isn't even printing money it's literally just making it up in a computer entry um and and you know the effects that that's had uh, even on things as simple as, you know, this story that came out with BlackRock purchasing houses and neighborhoods and, and other investors coming in and competing with, with individuals to buy family housing and the role that the federal government's easy money um, policy has had in enabling that, both in terms of um, trying to find appropriate yield for the risk that you're taking on, as well as basically giving them free taxpayer money in order to go out and compete with you. So those kinds of things, people don't understand. And then the worst part is it gets blamed on capitalism and like the Federal Reserve and their intervention is central planning. Like it has nothing to do with capitalism. So I'm always happy to have these kinds of conversations to help get the the phrase out, get people more comfortable with something that's intentionally meant to be um, confusing. Yes. Well, uh, you probably didn't see it, but I was on Timcast two weeks prior to you. And, and I made, uh, cause this was when the BlackRock news first dropped. Yeah. I made the exact same argument that you did. Cause, cause Tim and these other people that are, you know, <clears throat> I think that they're aligned with us in, in many ways politically, Correct. but, but a lot of people lack the understanding of, of monetary policy and things like that to assess these issues 
accurately in real time. And and when when I saw you two weeks later making a very similar counter argument, yes. I was thrilled to see someone who I respected so much viewing this thing the same way I did. And and it was very uh, you know it was conf- confirming to my to my assessment that that this is largely a product of of the Federal Reserve and terrible monetary policy that is creating these problems. Yeah. But just to give you an example of, of my thesis here with the four degrees of the Federal Reserve. And by the way, I started with three, but then I thought about it. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I need to give myself leeway because some some issues are tough. So you got uh, America is racist. So then obviously, usually people will use income inequality as evidence of that. But then you can bring up the Canelon effect and how, you know, money that's closest to the the uh, the printing press obviously has higher purchasing power. Uh, the people that are closest to the printing press oftentimes are not minorities. So that adds to exacerbating the income inequality that allows people to think that it's racist. So basically you're at three, four degrees if you want to go there. Or culture de- cultural decline is a harder one. So I said, then you go to depreciating currency, which requires two income households, uh, which means that there's not an attentive parent that's in the household all the time, which you know degrades culture. And then there you go, the Federal Reserve. So, anyways, uh, this this is a working I, thesis, I, but I lo- I love the thesis, and um, because I feel like this is like wonky nerd heaven here, we're gonna <laughs> have a great great time with this. I love to talk a little bit more about this thesis of income inequality, Please, um, because I I hate the phrase, and I I always try to say that like unequalness is not a relevant measure when it comes to something like capitalism and different inputs and outputs and different objectives, by the way. Um, And so everyone's like, well, how do you say that and still advocate for the little guy? It's because like, I want people to all be wealthy. And if like everybody's millionaires and a few people are billionaires, that might be highly unequal, but we're all doing well. We could also be very equal in poverty and that's a really crappy outcome. So the differential between the two, I think is not as much of an issue as it is the wealth transfer by government mandate and the limiting of wealth creation opportunities. And I spent a lot of time and people are like, why, why are you such a pain in the butt about this? You know, I spent a lot of time about cronyism versus crony capitalism and freedom and choice and transparency instead of capitalism, because all these words and phrases have gotten bastardized and are always used as an argument against something that they're not even related to. So I think it's really important when we're talking about you know, this, this challenge, this wealth challenge, that it, it's a challenge of wealth creation opportunities, not a differential between those opportunities. Because again, like some people value freedom and some people value passion and some people value their time. And these are things that like are homogenous. So it's hard for us to make those comparisons. So we, we measure the only thing that we can compare, which is the financial piece, which again, doesn't make a lot of sense, but obviously the wealth, the limiting the wealth creation opportunities and poverty, those things do. So um, I'm just going to put that out there in terms of people thinking about it and the way we communicate. I think it's really important because just unequalness of itself is not a bad thing. And equalness is not a good thing, as we you know, kind of said, again, equal, equal and <laughs> poverty is not something to um, basically try to aspire to. 
Exactly. And, and it's also not as simple as, as lowering the highest boats and having the lowest boats rise right. the equal amount. Like, like the, that doesn't the, work. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the whole, the whole zero sum concept of wealth is, is another enormous right. problem in our culture and it's a lack of economic understanding. I mean, we create wealth. It's not a right. matter, it's not a matter of balancing it. So I, I really, I told, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that this is a huge, huge problem that people, because they don't understand economics, every, every economic problem they see, they, um, they allocate problems to it. Like they, they add problems to it to actually alleviate the issue. And, and I don't know, I don't know how we go about, uh, you know, remedying this. It, uh, obviously you've, you've read Rothbard. I'm, I'm of the Rothbardian uh, wing as well. Is it, is it that simple? Do we just get them interested in Austrian economics? Cause you know, you know, we're not going to get most people interested in economics, much less Austrian economics. So yeah, how do you, I mean, what do you think? I, I feel like we need to, to make it more accessible. Uh, and I think that that's part of the issue. It's the reason why the feds so opaque. It's the fight that's going on um, with the retail investors on wall street right now. You know, it's all these things that are intentionally opaque that create artificial barriers from people participating in them. And I think we need to work together to make it more accessible. And I'm gonna, you know, blame a lot of the capitalists. Like we have some really, can I swear on this? Yes, please. We Fuck have them. some really shitty capitalists <laughs> um, running around pretending, and I'm guessing it's you know, for their own ego that they don't want everyone to figure out that they were just lucky not that, you know, not, not that they're that smart, um, but like trying to pull up the ladder behind that they've benefited from basic tenets of capitalism and then don't believe that everybody else can as well and keep going over oh, well, like the government does that needs to do this. And it's like, well, would you have your kids, you know, doing this with the government? Well, of course not. Well, okay, well then don't have these low expectations for everyone else. What we need is the people who have benefited to help break down the barriers and, and to you know, make those things that there's no reason why they need to be less accessible, just like shift the language a little bit and, and try to help people explain because people are interested in learning these things. They just don't know what they don't know. And then unfortunately, in some cases, they've ascribed incorrect things to the things they do know. So it's like not being rude. It's not looking down on them. It's not telling them they're dumb or like how, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, well, like, have you looked at it this way? Because the crazy thing, and this is like the, the most fascinating thing that I've learned in the last like several years is like, if you look at the progressives and you look at like the super conservatives, and then you look at even like the libertarian-ish, like, you know, middle ground individualist folks, like a lot of us have identified all the same problems. Like we, like we all know these things are screwed up. We've just described different solutions. And I think that if you could get some of the people who are a little bit more sort of emotional and maybe don't have the economic background to kind of think through like, hey, the good intention doesn't lead to the good outcome necessarily, that we can convert people by saying like, listen, we all agree. This isn't what we're agreeing. This is a problem. But here, listen to a different way that we can fix this instead of, you know, it, and I've been um, guilty of this myself, just being like, oh, like you're, you know, stupid idiot, Bernie bro. And like, what do you know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, it, you're absolutely right. You got to meet people where they're at and, and try and, and try and be kind and understand that you are deprogramming a ton of misinformation yeah. and like have some sympathy for what they're going through. I, Cause I, I got into a, at 4th of July, of course, I had a big debate with some friends and, and uh, you know, in, in the past, I probably would have 
defended big business more than I do now. This past year, I haven't defended big business once. I mean, they, they, they have, because they have endorsed um, all of these lockdown protocols when it benefited them tremendously. It broke the backs of their competitors, which are the smaller businesses and, and it's cronyism. And like for me to defend big business that is benefiting from cronyism would be counter to defending capitalism itself because this is not capitalism. And, and it's just super important. And this is why I love your work so much because you do have a big platform and you are making this message succinct for people that, you know, we like, we're not so far apart. Like, yeah, we understand the same problems and we're, and, and we're giving different solutions. But like, if we can, if we can actually speak to each other without um, immediately assuming the worst intentions, we might actually be able to come together and, and make some, some progress here. Are you, are you hopeful after all this, uh, this book tour and everything else? <laughs> we'll see. I mean, first of all, I, I think there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Um, you know, we, we definitely, we're not all in this together. And I think that's something that we, we all just have to completely dispel. We were not all in this together. There were lots of businesses that never locked down that represent about half the economy or more. Um, you know, the, the people who did, you know, didn't get the appropriate compensation. So this whole like idea that we were all in this together is not the case. And, and no. we need to dispel that. Um, but to the kind of the conversational thing and what's been going on from a cultural standpoint that's facilitated a lot of this power consolidation is the biggest trick that these politicians have pulled is getting us to point the fingers at each other instead of pointing the fingers at them. You know, if, if everyone would just like stop and be like, let's just call a truce, like we're gonna have a family meeting, the different you know gang members or mafia families or whatever it is. We just called a truce for a second here and just sat down and went, listen, guys, <laughs> like we're, we're all on the same side here. We're all trying to do the same thing, but like, listen to what they, what they're doing here. Like they're the problem. I feel like if we stood shoulder to shoulder, we're able to point the fingers back. That's like where the strength would lie, but they have completely turned it. And so instead of being willing to listen and engage in these discussions that it's turned the other way, you're part of the reason why small business should theoretically be the, a really good inroad to making you know, this broader discussion about you know, individual rights and small government is like, theoretically, everybody should be on the side of small business, right? If you're like progressive, like you don't want the big businesses and the, the, you know, these, these guys to get mega wealthy. You know, if you're conservative, you believe in free market and decentralization, um, you know, same thing with the people in the middle. So like, theoretically, this should be like a non-starter here. Like everyone should be able to get on board with like, okay, let's, let's start talking about what happened with the small business. Again, you know, the, the media doesn't want you to go down that road to hear how complicit they were. Um, big businesses, you know, don't want me to, to you know, sponsor me to, to come to their organizations and talk about all the bad things that they've been doing that are anti-competitive. So like, it's a, it's a decentralized scenario that I've been going around, which again, not the most efficient way, but it's, it's how it has to be done. Talking to creators, which you are decentralized media to go out and spread the message. And I hope, Clint, that after our discussion here, that people are going to see this as a movement and they're going to take and they're going to go read the book and they're going to learn these, these principles and they're going to go out and they're going to start telling other people because that's how we have to, to spread. You cannot rely on a handful of people with a big 
platform to do the work. Like everybody has to do the work to preserve our freedom and our economic freedom. You know, we, we can't have a handful of people shouldering this this burden. Um, you know, in terms of on behalf of you know the economy. So you know, hopefully that's what's happening here. <laughs> We'll find out, right? True, true. We'll find I mean, out. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what the future holds either. Uh, I will link in the description to her book, so definitely do pick it up. It's The War on Small Business by Carol Roth. Uh, I think that these are the stories that, that we need to be talking about, and we need to understand the economic damage caused by these lockdowns and, and why we have such an uphill battle to remedy it. Um, it's, it's horrifying. Here's my another thesis I have is that basically if we fail – if we fail in our mission to educate the populace as to what actually transpired and why the economy is is so unequal, um, there will be a Marxist revolution in this country. Like, I mean, it's like you live in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I felt when you were on Timcast. I was like, "This is my lady right here." <laughs> yeah, like so, like apparently, like you are my alter ego. So yeah. lucky for you. Yes, I mean, this is exactly what's happening. So, like, if you imagine, we have the spectrum. And I try not to again get like too caught up in definitions because I feel like that's where things go sideways. But if you think of like free markets on one side being the tenets of um, freedom, choice, and transparency, and then the other side of the spectrum, and again, I don't care if you want to call it central planning, socialism, democratic socialism, communist, like whatever it is, but it's like a handful of people making decisions and it's forced coercion and, and control. So if you see that spectrum, you know, we were much closer to free market capitalism decades ago and through lots of um, silly things, some of which I lay out in the book, like we've just like continued to move towards central planning and the central planners and the government at all levels have gotten bigger. They've gotten bigger in terms of the amount of spending, the purview of what they've, they've got their hands in the middle of, the number of laws, you know, Federal Reserve, like all those kinds of things. Um, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. So we've definitely moved across the spectrum. We're at a point now, after what transpired last year, where you have the economy that's literally before that before last year was cut in half. Thirty point two million pre-COVID small businesses decentralized, closer to free market. You know, wealth creation, whatnot. And like 10 to 15,000 big businesses are the other half. And what we've done is we've transferred more power and more balance from the decentralized half to the centralized part. And what's going to eventually happen is as that moves and as that moves, you're going to get more people on the government dole. They're going to propose UBI. You're going to start pushing it. And we're going to end up, like you said, in some kind of centrally planned, whether it's like full socialism, Marxist revolution, like whatever it is, some centrally planned nightmare um, where, you know, you don't have the wealth creation opportunities. And not only is there, there no American dream, it's just like a, a total complete nightmare. Tonight's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Run Your Mouth Coffee. Run Your Mouth Coffee is where delicious coffee meets uncensored speech. So where else are you going to advertise for that product other than Liberty Lockdown? Nowhere else. That's right. The co-founders are libertarians who have paired their love of fresh roasted coffee with a healthy hatred of censorship. God bless them. Run Your Mouth Coffee was founded by two Liberty podcasters, John Odermatt of Lions of Liberty, which I was just on uh, two days ago. 
So you should check that out, as well as Ben Panji of Homesteads and Homeschools. The coffee beans are sourced from around the world and roasted to order in the U.S., so you receive your fresh roasted coffee at its peak flavor. If you're feeling rebellious, which if you listen to this show, you probably are, check out the Rebellion Beans. They are aged for 30 days in a bourbon barrel, then roasted to order. Use promo code LOCKDOWN for 10% off and free shipping. To make that purchase, go to rymcoffee.com. That's R-Y-M, like run your mouth. rymcoffee.com. And make sure you use the code LOCKDOWN to get 10% off and free shipping. Run Your Mouth Coffee has the coffee game on lockdown. Yeah, dystopia, exactly. And and I, I really think that if, like, even if you just want to put it in the sense of what's best for us as a nation, if you want to get into, like, the nationalistic stance, you should you should be able to you know explain to people that if you have a, a handful of big businesses that are the dominant you know creative force in our country, we're going to lose. I mean, we're going to lose on a global scale if, in a global globally competitive environment simply because what made America special, in my view, was that small business had an opportunity to innovate, to take risks, to do things that were to be know, the big businesses. Like, how do you think those big businesses got there? They started as small businesses. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But now it's it's bureaucratic and it's slow, and the innovation is getting you know kind of it's just decreasing and. And that's that's a, a natural product of having, you know, oligarchs where you don't have the the capacity to take really huge entrepreneurial risk to create, you know, world changing, life changing innovations. And and I if you know, if you are a nationalist of any stripe, you should want those new ideas to be coming from American businesses, because that means that the wealth is flowing here. If we if we continue on this trajectory, I think we will have our lunch eaten by whatever other country decides to go the opposite direction. And at this point, everyone's going a tyrannical direction. So I don't know that it much matters, but you know, El Salvador or some other country may, may hop in the race and, uh, and start to destroy us uh, economically. Do you think that that's, uh, our, did you get into that in your book in terms of concern about the overall trajectory of the economy or is it more just focused on the, the small businesses? No, I mean, it's definitely in terms of economic freedom. I mean, I didn't go through, you know, the El Salvadorian future revolution here in America, but right. um, <laughs> it's true. And, and I, I try to, when I talk to people, um, to, because I'm an individualist and we're so focused on the U.S., to, to not lose track of the global perspective, sure, um, sure. you know, people are like, well, you know, billionaires should be illegal and we shouldn't be allowed to have them. Like you have to, again, and this is like strategy is one of my strengths. Um, and I know it's not for everyone, but like you have to think three steps out, folks. Like the place that's minting the most billionaires right now is China. It's not the United States. So if you want all the power and the money in the world to be with the communist governments, then we have another set of problems. So we can't be against wealth. <laughs> That's a stupid thing. We can't be against the opportunity. We have to be against the creation of that by a tilted playing field. And that's the that's the the fundamental issue. And this requires some nuance. But like there's no problem if you know some of these companies get big and people get like super wealthy. Cause again, that's a, like checks and balances on power in the world, which is like we we happen to play in, um, which is important but we don't want them to then have an outsized impact on our government, which means that we need to reduce the purview 
of the things that the government is in charge of and can influence. And that's the way to, to create that barrier. So, um, you know, again, this is like 4D chess here that's going on. But like, if you're gonna be talking about organizing an economy, you kind of need to be thinking in those directions. And if it's not your strong suit, like, you know, listen to, to people who have that expertise and not like some dude on Twitter who's like jumping up and down because he paid his employees a lot because he's in a service business that's highly scalable. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, that's nice, but that doesn't mean that that's like a model for organizing like the largest economy in the world. So for sure. Yeah. And one, one trend I've seen that really disturbs me over the past year is that, that the progressive wing is now advocating for big business. They're, they're saying that that small business, if, if a small business can't afford to pay an employee $15 an hour plus health insurance, plus benefits, plus paid maternity leave, plus X plus Y plus Z, uh, then they don't deserve to be in business. So yeah, they should go work at Amazon. It's like, do you have any idea what you're saying right now? Like you, you are advocating on behalf of arguably the biggest business in the history of the world. And you're, and you're an anti-capitalist. <laughs> like, you, I, mean, I mean, these people yeah, are remarkable. Well, this goes back to the four degrees of separation of the Federal Reserve right. and not understanding you know, the uh, the effects of artificial wage increases and the value of the dollar and the fact that like, okay, great. Well, now you're going to be getting paid $15 an hour. You'll kill the small businesses and you'll be paying $23 for a slice of pizza, but it'll be <laughs> by Amazon because there will be no pizza places left to deliver you your pizza. They'll take yeah. a loss on that so that they can, you know, charge you an upcharge of something else. And again, it's like good intention. Like, yes, we want people to get paid more. And that's, this is the part that kills me. It's like being against the minimum wage is not being against like paying people more and people's success, but there's like a way this works and like, we can't control that right. <laughs> and not understanding the implications and wanting to force and control everything is the problem. Like, I don't care if like, you're like, I am not going to patronize a business that like, doesn't pay x dollars an hour it doesn't have these like great you should totally do that tell your friend like if that's important to you do that but like don't keep like a 16 year old from getting their first job holding a sandwich sign outside of a street that could be stuck down in the ground for free because exactly. of your moral like superiority and not understanding economics so it's like it's it's really again like we can't legislate this this morality without having the bad outcomes. And one of the fascinating things about the minimum wage, and I talk about this, I think in two places in the book is, and I didn't know this before um, some, re some research I had done for a, another project before this, is that the minimum wage was instituted first in Canada and then in the United States um, as a way to keep immigrants and people of color and women out of the workforce. I mean, it was basically, basically uh, racist and sexist because they knew that in, in our officially increasing their wages that nobody was going to hire these folks over, you know, somebody who was not one of those folks. And so it was, it was the progenitor of the, the, uh, you know, the white male patriarchy. <laughs> it is, it was, it really yeah. was. And it, it presented as like, oh, this is super pro worker, which I guess technically it was because those were the people who were working at the time. Yes. But the point of the matter is like, it kept 
the people who were the most vulnerable out of the workforce. And it like has the same effect today. Like it hasn't changed. And again, minimum is like the floor is the place you walk through. It's not like average. It's not the the limit. It's like literally the starting point. And, and it's not supposed always to. Says, it's not supposed yeah. to be a living wage. I, no, it drives well, me crazy yeah. when people say that. <laughs> They're like, like I was, I was a bagger at at Albertsons for you know five fifty an hour as my first job or one of my first jobs. I, that's not supposed to be livable. It takes no skill. I'm just throwing food in a bag. Like, why should I get paid enough to live off of that? I'm sixteen well, too. Yeah, and it's okay. So there's so many, so many things. It's like, like if you you hire a babysitter, like do you, when the babysitter gets to your house, do you go like, okay. So like, how much do you need to live on? <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> you need $1,000 for the month. Here's $1,000. I'll be back into like, no, nobody does it. If you go out on the, the street to like buy a loaf of bread, let's say you're near like a farmer's market or something. You want some bread, right? Do you go to the guy and be like, okay, so how's your day been? It's late in the day. It's five o'clock. Like, how much do you need to live today? Okay, $300. Like here, that's I'm gonna give you. Like, nobody does that. That's, this is Marxism, right? right. Like, it's literally, like, and what, what is how much you need to live on? So this is where the, like, there's two sides, right? This is a contract. There's a job and there's also a person. And, and listen, I have sympathy. If, if you're somebody, I've been there. I've been, you know, I worked my way through college. I was $40,000 in college debt. I worked 80 to 120 hours a week for many, many years. Like I get it. I have done this. My bedside table was a cardboard box with a sheet over it. Like I, I'm not telling you this as somebody who hasn't done this before, but like if you're in the, by the way, fairly rare position, but there are people in this position who need to support yourself and or a family and have no other options and you have no skills, then like you need to work more than 40 hours a week. And I know this, like some people seem to go, oh my God, like you're such a horrible person just because you, no, like literally like 40 hours is, I don't even know where that came from. Like, that's not a whole lot. By the way, I still work like 80, like 60 to 80 hours a week sometimes. I believe it. So, you know, it's like, work 60 or 80 hours for, and so you build up your skills and move up and then you get to the manager position or whatever it is, assistant manager, you don't have to do that anymore because you, you need to support a family. And that's like your particular situation. But like, again, we can't make rules about every person in the economy because you have this specific set of circumstances that you've either gotten yourself into or have been thrust upon you because of a bad fate. Again, we have sympathy, but like you can you can work 60 to 80 hours like that's not a, like why is that any worse of an outcome than like completely shutting down reams of small businesses, not letting teenagers work like like all of the things because like a handful of people have this like unusual circumstance like work more hours like this is not. And of course, like I'm going to be called mean and horrible. and I don't understand. I'm totally empathetic and yeah. I'm totally all about. And like, by the way, like even at Taco Bell, like they're starting to pay managers a hundred thousand dollars in some locations. So like you can get in, get in, get that job, work really hard and they're going to promote you up that chain and you're going to be building wealth soon. So this is not like I'm trying to keep somebody down. I'm trying to get you in the game. Exactly. Otherwise you're not in the game and you're going on the government dole and you're never getting wealthy. And that's the like part that people who have, again, good intentions but don't understand economics, don't want to hear. And I have to say, like limiting men, like mentalities, like they think that people can't get lift themselves up to the next level. And I'm sorry, like I think anyone can. Yep. 
Well, I mean, except for maybe the rarest of rare circumstances, but I'd sure. say the va vast, vast, vast majority Exce of people. Exceptions to the rules, yes. If you have yeah. a, a particular disability or handicap, or what, obviously we have special situations to right. deal with that, but for like almost every person without exception, like I'm not going to put limiting beliefs on you. You have to do that yourself. I completely agree. And, and you know, just... I, a lot of people know that I'm in my mid thirties and I'm basically retired and, and I did that. And, and yet I have never, I don't think I've ever told people that the first property I ever bought and I lived in for a few years was a mobile home. So like I was willing and I was, and, and I was going through college uh, taking like 20 plus credits, which was a, a absurd load. And then on top of that, I was delivering pizzas 30 to 40 hours a week. And, and you know, that's, that's how I started. It was extremely frugal it was not fun. I lived in a mobile home park. It wasn't awesome. It was, but you know, that, that was, that was character building. And it was the first, it was the first step in the rung of the ladder to wealth building. And, and I feel like this country has, has lost their capacity to eat their vegetables, you know, yes. like, like they, they don't like everyone just wants to go straight to dessert. And I'm like, yo, you got to eat your vegetables. You got to do some shitty work when you're young. That's why you do it then because you're capable and you have extra time. You don't have kids or a family or a wife or anything yet. And you, you build up from there and, and people are just trying to like skip ahead. I don't know if it's the Instagram social media culture with, you know, seeing everybody out on boats and, and living the, the big life, but like, that's not real life. Like you gotta, you gotta build from somewhere unless you're very blessed. I mean, if you, if you have a trust fund or something, you know, that's a different story, but I'm saying for people yeah, that, that want to build never from works the bottom. Out. Yeah, yeah, never works out. Delayed gratification is, is a fundamental cultural thing that we have lost. And obviously with the immediacy of technology, that doesn't help. Um, the Instagram thing is hilarious because like I, every day I read a story about somebody who's been busted for either like completely faking it or the last one I read is this guy. Did you read about this hush puppy guy? Oh, uh, no, I don't money, know that one. Like money laundering or like you know, something <laughs> like that. Like I, I, I'm not trying to slander him to read the story, but like he, he's been busted. There's like some kind of illicit way that he was able to attain anybody. Here's. Here's a, here's a secret, boys and girls. Anybody who has a lot of money doesn't tell other people because they don't want other people to hit them up for money. <laughs> so you keep it on the DL. The people who are doing this like ostentatious thing, unless it's like, you know, the Kardashians and it's like their branding thing. Like yeah. most of the people, they're just, it's posing. They're trying to create this, this illusion for you to buy into to hopefully get them to the, that point. But like literally like nobody who like has, has any man, money management skills is like out buying a depreciation at depreciating asset, like, you know, seven Ferraris, like it just doesn't happen. No, that's, that's the, that's the new rich. That's the dumb rich. That's the soon to be poor mentality in my opinion. And, and honestly, the only reason I even talk about my financial success is because I, I want my listeners to understand that, that my ideas have merit, that Austrian economics yeah. has value. And that's, and I can't, I can't convince them of that unless I explain to them, I managed hundreds of millions of dollars and I made a good amount of money uh, doing so. And I did it with Austrian economic background. So like, stop just reading philosophy and theory and go out and apply these things. Because uh, the biggest thing I think that it's a mistake in the libertarian sphere is that they understand economics better than almost anybody. And there's so few of them that are using that knowledge to their benefit. That is your competitive advantage. Take advantage of it. Like, go 
go short some stuff when you see a crazy bubble. Go buy when the market tanks and everybody else is scared to death, but you understand that the Federal Reserve is going to step in and inflate <laughs> these assets. Like these are opportunities of a lifetime, and, and it just it drives me crazy when libertarians don't take advantage. Um, are, did, is, are you of the libertarian realm? I mean, if you're reading Rothbard, you can't be too far off. I mean, so I call, call myself an advocate for small government, small business, and big hair. <laughs> I don't know what, what sect that is. I, you know, I, I say like, it's like, an I'm, not, indi- I'm not with you on the hair thing. I, you know, well, you can still advocate for it, even okay, if you're not okay, participating in it. Um, but yeah, like I consider myself an individualist and like a free market capitalist, which puts me probably closest to like libertarian-ish. I just don't like to be parts of teams. I'm not, I'm not trying to. Yeah, other than sports, but it's just like one of those things. It's like, yeah, I don't, you know what I mean. So I don't, I don't, I don't like, I don't love labels, but I would say most. Well, let's put it this way: people have called me everything. Like I've been a, I've been alt right, I've been conservative, I've been libertarian, I've been progressive, I've been. Well, I, yeah. I don't, I don't know, which, which is good. I feel like it makes means I'm doing the right thing, and people are, are not sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I think. I think if, if a group were to like claim me in the draft, I would think the libertarians would probably go pretty hard based oh, yeah. on it, but oh, they yeah. might have some fights for, from the conservatives. So well, I don't know, I'm, but I'm, I'm definitely, I don't consider myself conservative because I don't, again, with individual rights, I don't think either side has sort of good ownership over the individual rights argument, whether it's fiscal or social. Um, and yeah, I just like, yeah, I just, I don't like to be parts of a platform. I think that's where this country's gone wrong. I mean, the biggest duopoly, as we know, is the two-party system in, in this country. And that, you know, the, the country has amassed this crazy Frankenstein big government under the leadership of both parties. So um, Democrats are a little bit more honest about it, I feel yeah, like. They look at it as uh, a But I don't feel like either, either uh, side does very well in terms of that yeah, well, and and this is another part of the debate I was having at the Fourth of July with some friends is that, you know, they kept going back to, like, we kept agreeing on it's big business and big government that's in bed right. together. That's the problem. But I just kept going back to they're like they're like we have to get money out of politics. We have to get the corruption out of politics. And I was like, look, yeah, yeah of course, of course we agree. But here's the truth: as long as you have a government, a federal government or state that is responsible for deploying ten to twenty trillion dollars annually. You're going to have unbelievable corruption because there's just too much money at the end of that rainbow that's going to make anyone willing to risk jail time to go get it. So stop with this whole like the the. basically I'm saying unless you shrink the size of the government and you make it less appealing to go and be a dirty actor, you're going to be a dirty actor. And and until that happens, I don't see how we how we stem the tide. Do you is that is that an unfair uh, assessment? No, listen, amen. So let me can I just hijack your interview here for a second? So, you know, here's the the thing is that, you know, get a lot of people to agree on this. And, you know, the the multi-trillion dollar question is how do you affect it? Like, how do you go and just tear down the monster that is the federal government? That that's the big issue. And it's like, I just don't feel that electing electing a couple people (laughs) there is really going to get it done. Like, I just, like, I don't, like, do you, have, have you come across good solutions that we just haven't put in place or? Uh, I mean, I think, I think honestly, 
this is my my opinion is that reforming the system is an impossibility. The the corruption is too too deep seated. It's going to amount to uh, I I believe that this country will have a, a secessionary movement amongst the north and the south or the conservatives and the progressives, whatever however you want to have that dividing line. I just think at some point it's going to get so bad, and it's probably going to come when the next economic bubble pops. Um, and then you'll see so much, you know, economic pain and destruction that people will start to go like, okay. Uh, and, and not to mention my, my episode two days ago or a week ago was reading off um, Biden's first day in office. He puts together <laughs> a, a document basically declaring all political dissidents as extremists and, you know, potential terrorists. And I'm like, I'm like, this is, this is headed in the trajectory of, you know, a hot civil war. My, my personal belief is that it would be far better to have a peaceful secessionary movement where we just go hey we can't we can't see things the same way you you guys don't believe in in business or capitalism at all we do like we have to go our separate ways i believe me yeah, I, here's hope, the, here's the I hope I'm so here's the here's the functional problem because like I, i've i've ran the math on this too <laughs> so who's in charge of the money supply well yeah i mean we got to end the fed <laughs> 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 I really, I really believe until, it, and well, this is, this is another, this is a white pill for me is that I think that the advent of the cryptocurrency space, and I would love to hear your, your input on this because yeah. you understand this stuff as well, if not better than I do. Um, I think that that, pre that presents an opportunity for building wealth outside of centrally controlled currency. Do you, do you have any optimism for it? Is it, is it a pipe dream? What do you think? I mean, this is like, this is again like multi-trillion dollar questions. So I think cryptocurrency is fascinating. Um, you know, I, I understand why it's taken hold and I am back the reasons why it originally came to be, uh, or at least some of the reasons why it came to be, you know, with the concerns over the Federal Reserve and what they've done you know, with our, with our dollars. Mm -hmm. I guess in terms of it actually being a currency, so like going through like what is a currency, unit of account, medium of exchange, store of value, I just don't see any of the ones that are out there yet in that place. And maybe we get there or maybe it's sure. one that hasn't been created yet. I also wonder about the you know, going back to centralization of power, it does seem like there are a handful of people, and I won't name anyone, Elon Musk, um, you know, who, you know, tend to move prices or whatnot based on tweets or because they own large amounts of it. I, I think, I don't remember which one is, but I looked at one of the, the currencies and it was like a handful of wallets, like owned like 80% of the supply um, and obviously I know that, you know, Ethereum increases the supply and Bitcoin doesn't and whatnot, but it's like, it's, it's like, how do you, how do you keep that decentralization when you've got the centralized thing? So like, yeah. so there's that issue. There's the obvious like stock markets denominated in dollars, IRS collects in dollars, um, federal people who are tied to government um, have power because of dollars and they have the military. So what happens with that? Um, and then it doesn't like move into something that's more of a hard asset and look more like, you know, gold or maybe even wine or art or something like that, um, which I've made the case before. I find it like fascinating because most of the time those things are have built their value on being exclusionary. 
And this is the first time we're seeing something that's inclusionary theoretically. And so like, I just like, I'm trying to like navigate my way through all of these different permutations on something that's very nascent. I'm very worried about the Fed not only continuing on, um, and I, I may have a slightly different take in terms of abolishing it versus reining it in and having really strict guardrails on what they can do. Yeah. My concern about abolishing the Fed is that the government steps in to take the place of a lot of, <laughs> of the uh, functions. Oh my God, yeah. Um, which is a, if you could imagine, a potentially worse outcome would be a worse outcome. Right. So I would think that like going back to maybe like a Milton Friedman who had said the money supply can only you know increase in some like formula based on the growth mm. and the GDP or you know something like that makes more sense. But we have to rein in their purview. I mean, this is insane. And we cannot let them continue to monetize the US government debt. Like that's a, a non-starter um, and there's so many bad things. But I do worry about the Fed going into a digital currency, which again, is not going to be a cryptocurrency. It's going to be under the purview of the Fed. And then they track everything. Like you think it's bad now that like they're tracking your credit card statements and then they've got like the control of the money supply and they're tracking everything that you do. And like, like we got to hang on to, to cash in some way, shape or form, because it's like the only pushback of them, like literally just tracking everything and doing all kinds of things. So like, there's a lot of really scary stuff coming down. You, the you have thought about this so deeply. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, like to the point where it's like nightmare inducing fuel. And I try to like not go there. Cause I like, I'm generally an optimist um, in terms of like, like, I feel like if you don't buy into the system, at least in some way, shape or form, then we're all just like, zombie apocalypse level f you know what i mean <laughs> so it's kind of like it doesn't really pay to go to that level but it, it is an interesting thought because it's like well if it does go to that level like what what is it that retains value i mean like isn't it at a point where like you should be stockpiling seeds because like that becomes valuable um, obviously, we know guns and ammo always valuable. Um, house, you know, housing ownership of land, assuming you can like defend it, valuable. But to what level? I don't know. Like they're, they're, these are all like like historic, crazy things to kind of think through. And like yeah. certainly, like the average person should not be like terrorizing their life thinking through them. But I do think we need to allow for the fact that we are going in a bad place. And we've seen what's happened with Venezuela and we've seen this happen in other places. And like, we need to have some intervention here soon, or like it may be the last bastion of, of hope. I, I could not agree more with any of that. Uh, it was, that was just terrific. Uh, yeah, here's, here's my concern. And uh, I want to run this past you because obviously you have a lot of, you know, similar background and you can hopefully tell me, tell me I'm wrong, I hope. <laughs> um, so my, my assessment is that we're going to see uh, increasing, increasing inflation because they've simply put so much new dollars into the system as the economy turns back on, uh, the monetary velocity will pick up, you'll start to see increasing inflation from that. And it kind of builds upon itself because obviously as the consumer sees the price of goods going up month after month, they start to buy more, which decreases the supply on hand, basically creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of a hyperinflationary blowout. So uh, the, the 
obviously the the mechanism that the Federal Reserve would use historically to fight that would be to hike interest rates due to the national debt levels being where they're at. I'm not sure they can hike interest rates. So it's I mean, I don't know how it plays out. My, my thesis has been that they will they will hike interest rates one last time to prevent the dollar from dying. And that'll be the biggest deflationary collapse in our lifetime and the biggest buying opportunity in our in our lifetime before the ultimate death of the dollar. Or they won't hike interest rates and they will kill the dollar and they will shift over to a central bank digital currency. Um, do you have any idea? Like, first off, am I wrong on any of that? And secondarily, do you have a, a, an assessment as to which path they actually choose? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of that that's like similar to the the, the thought process that many of us have been thinking about. Um, I think that certainly I've been talking about this for a while, that, that the mandate of the Fed, which used to be this dual mandate of, you know, price stability and full employment, employment. Yeah has gone out the window. I mean, obviously prices are not stable. No matter how many times I'll tell you, you save 16 cents on your hot dog, prices are not stable. None of us are stupid, right? <laughs> and then full employment, well, when you have like almost 8 million jobs that are you know left to be filled or whatever it is, like, I mean, you're competing with the government. I mean, to me, like if you want a job, you can get it. So, I mean, in a, in a sense, employment is stable and no monetary policy is gonna change that, right? right. So that, that's something else. So I feel like their dual mandate has been to prop up the stock market and to ensure that we aren't um, having a problem in servicing our debt, which you, you just identified. And that's you know the big concern here is I feel like that's what this has all been about is that we're gonna have this interest that is gonna just crowd out like any other potential spending and like who knows. I think the, the one thing that you didn't add into the equation is what fiscal policy and ridiculous crap comes out of the government that influences economics from a fiscal standpoint, mm -hmm. whether that be you know, the infrastructure spend, whether that be this like stupid global minimum tax, whether it means increasing capital gains, whether it means raising the minimum wage, whether it's the PRO Act, like all of these wild cards that will shift what this historic outcome ends up being. So like the one I've been saying is a possibility is stagflation, right. where you actually, you know, the government or the, the economy completely stagnates. We have stagnated growth because they've messed with, you know, risk, they've messed with, you know, all these kinds of, of different things. And we're they, drowning under the debt burden. Right. And then you have, but you still have increasing wages and runaway pricing and whatnot. And so you end up in this like just really worst of all worlds scenario. I think that's a possibility. Um, I think the, the scenario that you went through is a possibility. I mean, there, there's like so many different outcomes and like the only saving grace, like here's my like one, like slight ray of sunshine. Please in the give it to me. I need it is we are the skinniest kid at fat camp. We are sitting with a bunch of other central banks who are mimicking what we're doing. I mean, in fact, we know that they have negative interest rates in Europe, right? True, yeah. So you've got all these other central banks. So like, does there come to be some like insane meeting of the minds thing here that like, you know, kind of wipe stuff clean and does it like, or, or, debt jubilee. Or reset what, like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think like, that might be what the great reset actually is. Honestly. Yeah. Right. I mean, which by the way, is 
like I'm not like a conspiracy theorist or anything, but that's freaking frightening. And by the way, like on trend with all the things I've been talking about, about like you will not own anything and you will rent everything and yes. you know, wealth creation opportunities. So it's a it's a little too on the nose for me. It's right. like, it's like and, and who brings who brings right. that all who brings that all to pass? It's the central banks globally that can bring that to pass where yeah. they, they can they can basically give their buddies the capacity to buy all yeah. those while everyone else gets priced out. That's kind of what it looks like has been right. happening over the past. Yeah, year. yeah. I mean it, it does. Again, it's like I'm not like saying like it is a conspiracy, but I'm not like saying it's not at this point either. <laughs> I've kind of gotten to that level. Right. Um, so like, yeah, we just don't know. But you do know that guns and ammo will have value and food will have value. And theoretically, some oh, yeah. lands will have value. Outside of that, like, not really sure what's going to happen. But um, yeah, it's <laughs> weird times we're living. Like, it's it's weird. Like I, like, I always say, like, I wonder, like, back in the Roman Empire, like, did they know everything was about to like or were they just like also like in the whole thing that they did because like there are a lot of us who can like see it like it's like watching that slow motion train where you're like no you're like, trying to run you can't get there um that's, that's i just wonder whole... back in history if people saw it or they didn't oh my God. and i feel like i'm in like in that point in time where i'm like no don't you see where this movie is going i know the ending it's not well, good Turn i couldn't left. I... <laughs> Don't run in the house. <laughs> the call is coming from inside the house. Bernanke's been in the in the house the entire time. Seriously, no, I, I I completely agree with you. It is. I mean, uh, the the sad thing is is that you know the Romans didn't have the internet. They didn't have the you know the, no. the capacity to understand with hindsight what we do now. When we have all of this laid out, and it's just and it's just still so hard to to relay this information to people yeah. in a way that's palatable that they will actually consider it with an open mind and i agree with you i don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist either i just understand the trajectory of of what these things go towards because i've seen it in history i'm not making shit up like this is just this is what happens so here's what i'll say it's like i'm not even that good at history i just understand that actions have consequences sure or that and that's, that's like the basis like i was taught by my dad like an early age like if you do something there's a consequence to it and it could be good and it could be bad. like but like there's no neutrality in it like if you do something you know something there's an equal and opposite reaction yeah, right action and, and reaction right yeah. so that's that's what happens so that's all i know is that right. like you don't just print money at the levels that you've been doing it interfere in the market and disrupt the risk and not have consequences and these people who keep going like no 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 it's like new it's magic it's like no it's not magical this is like <laughs> basic and economics you wait know? carol you're um, telling you're telling me that they can't just print as much money as they want and there won't be any negative consequences you know i mean again based on everything i've ever seen or heard of in life no. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there's no magic money tree. I got you. Well, this no. this has been an absolute thrill for me. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Please follow her on Twitter at Carol J S Roth and pick up her book, The War on Small Business: How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. Me being one of those people crushed. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, Carol. It was an absolute bless. No, my pleasure, and thanks for being inside my head. I appreciate that. <laughs> and vice versa. It makes me feel less crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? It requires a fight, not tweet from your phone. Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne. If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home. The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go. The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe. Like Nico and Shane, you probably wonder what's happening. Scared Hollywood left these lyrical feppin'. A typo with Luke might bring the nooses. We all bite the bullet, I'm the king of the gooses. Freckles and Brit, didn't know I could spit. Knew I was a patriot, but now I'm the shit. Peter Quinones, invite me on Which podcaster sends custom songs Part of the problem, now I stand with the people Dave showed the way, but I am unequal Lions of Liberty, now hear me roar Beat running up, but I got a bit more Robbie the Fire, always running his mouth But I made him a sandwich, now I'm man of the house No malice for Nick, but you're welcome to quit I went over BLM with the fire I spit Friends against government just call us fags Copy the Cairo, put mummies in the bag Liable opinions get thrown on the ground Silky's Mouton was the only sound Getting so hot must be air July Screaming in the mic and rip for 59 Miles to ratio that black guns matter Now all these lefties got crazy small bladders None of us wanted war but we're ready You know I be bopping and rock steady Liberty lockdown, please scan your barcode Your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold Where did it come from and where did it go It requires a fight, not tweeting from your phone Don't need a king, get him off the fucking throne If you're riding with the thought, you've always got a home The virus is scared of, will come and it'll go The government knows this, don't get treated like a hoe